So I'll start again. Welcome to our gathering this morning. And uh, as you know, I've been going through the Psalms. And this morning, I'm not going to do anything different, but we're going to look at parts of Psalm 42. So please open up your Bibles to Psalm 42. And as you're opening up your Bible, I just want to highlight, I'm going to give you a crash course, if you will, of what we've covered so far in our study of the Psalms. If you've been here, this is going to be a means of just a refresher, a review, if you will. We've covered Psalm 1, and if you were here that Sunday morning over two years ago, uh, you might remember that we were highlighting the blessed man. And if you're familiar with Psalm 1, you understand that blessed is the man who walks out of the council of the wicked and does not sit in the seat of scoffer. But this man finds his delight in the law of the Lord, and, and in that law he meditates day and night. As we look at Psalm 1, we concluded that there's none of us, can I hear an amen to that? None of us. There's none of us that is that blessed man. There's none of us that can meet and, and, and measure up to the qualities found in Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is meant to point us to the one that never fails, to the one that meditated in the law of the Lord day and night, and that is no one else but the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 2, which we also covered, is talking about the anointed Messiah, the one that God has set in his holy hill, the one that will set his kingdom, the one who will rule the nations, the one who will crush all his adversaries. And this psalm is meant to stir our faith and, and encourage our hearts that we serve a God that is in complete control of all human affairs. Can I hear an amen to that truth? And if you were with us that Sunday morning, we highlighted that that Messiah, the anointed one, the one that God has set on his holy hill to govern with authority is the Lord Jesus Christ. We also cover Psalm 3. And this is David, the human king, the small king of Israel, who is being kicked out of the, uh, there, there's an attempt, there's a coup, there's an insurrection, if you will. They're trying to remove King, uh, David from the throne. And it was someone from his own house. It was his son by the name of Absalom, a, a, a strong man, a, a man that uh, was able to get a following. Um, and David writes in Psalm 3, he's praying out to God for God to save him from the hand of his son. Psalm 4 is an extension of that. And David is praying that he would be preserved from physical danger as he is hiding in caves. We also cover Psalm 6. And David now, possibly later in his life, he's reflecting on how the kingdom is falling apart, uh, is falling away from his grip because of his sin. And he committed gross immorality and murder. And David, who was supposed to be uh, the representative of God to the nation of Israel, failed miserably, yet God still showed him mercy and compassion and grace. And David, later on in his life, composes Psalm 6, which is a psalm to teach us uh, how to address God when we have sinned. And David says, rebuke me, praying to Yahweh, rebuke me, but just don't do it in anger. And in Psalm 8, David praises Yahweh because it is only Yahweh who has assigned, it is only God who has assigned value to, uh, to human life and human worth. In Psalm 12, um, we also study that the godly cry out to no one else but God because God is the one that delivers. And we were singing some of that truth this morning of Psalm 8 and Psalm 12 in song form. Also, Psalm 14, if you were here, you remember the anthem of the fool, the anthem that is sung in his heart. And what is it? What do they say in their heart? Yes, you were here this mor that morning. The fool's anthem in their heart is no God, no God for me. No way, no how. 
Psalm 15 also describes to us who will abide or who will live in God's holy hill. And we covered this during the Sermon on the Mount, which we focused a Sunday morning on Psalm 15. We determined that there's no one that is able to stand before a thrice holy God. It's only God who is able to make a way for wretched sinners like ourselves. I also covered Psalm 90 many years ago. And this is a psalm that was written by Moses. And Moses highlights in Psalm 90 the transitoriness of life. The life is short. And last time I uh, taught Psalm, we covered Psalm 19. And if you remember, we gave three ways that God communicates to mankind. The first one being creation and creation being a low level resolution audio, if you will, of God's message to mankind available to all. But it falls short. The second way that God speaks to man is through the word, the Bible, scripture. And scripture is clearer than creation. Amen. But the highest, more, the clearest, the higher resolution of revelation of God to mankind is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. Can I hear him into that truth? Uh, if we study Jesus, we will see God the Father. We will see his character because God is uh, Jesus represents the father. Exactly. You have seen me. You have seen the father. You understand me. You understand the father. This is what Christ said. So as we delve into the Psalms, I want you to consider that these were songs that were written as a means of instruction, as a means of praise. These are prayers that were written in times of need and anguish, in times of distress and discouragement. This morning, we're looking at Psalm 42. But I'm going to be honest with you, we're not going to cover much ground. We're only going to look at the super uh, superscript on the top of Psalm 42. So we're going to look at this inspired notation. We're going to look at this divinely inspired note that is on top of Psalm 42. And we're going to read it together. Psalm 42, if you're with me, I want you to read it along with me. And it says the following to the choir master. A maskal of the sons of Korah. I'll read it again. To the choir master, a maskal of the sons of Korah. Please pray with me. Father, as we dive into the text, I pray that our hearts would be prepared to hear from you. Lord, I must admit that we are not well acquainted with your word as we ought, that we all fall short. And this morning, as we look at the text, I pray that we would find encouragement. And as we spend time in the Old Testament looking at who the sons of Korah, who they were, I pray that our hearts would be revealed, that we would find encouragement in your word and in your faithful example. This we pray in your son's name. Amen. So please follow along with your outline. We are going to be looking at this inspired notation. And as I said before, I want you to consider the following, that that inspired notation to the choir master, a master of the sons of Korah, that's what we call the superscription, which is assigned to some of the Psalms, not all of them, but some of them. But I want to draw your confidence in the following, that the superscript that you see on these Psalms, uh, in your Bible translation, you might find it in a smaller print, right? On the top, centered on the top of the Psalm. And I believe that as we do that, um, we tend to minimize that notation. We tend to look at it like, oh, someone somewhere down the road put a little note for us to kind of gather our thoughts and know the setting, the context. 
But allow me to suggest to you that ancient manuscripts have these notations and they have them in the same font size, if you will. And some Bible translations actually include that notation as part of verse one or independently as verse one. So if you look at Psalm 42, verse one would be to the choir master of Masco, the sons of Korah. And then verse two would read as a deer, so on and so forth. So having said that, my effort this morning is I want you to consider the following, that that superscript, that inspired notation that you have on the top of that as a header of that psalm, we're going to treat it as divinely inspired scripture. Can I hear it in a minute? And we're going to do so. My effort this morning is to provide for us clarity why this notation is there. And it's going to force us to go to the Old Testament to discover why that notation is there. This psalm begins to the choir master. And as I said in our walk through, 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 the, book, uh, through the psalms, the choir master is a person, is a chief musician. It is a choir director. It is a praise leader, if you will. The Hebrew word is lamnaxeach. I trust I'm saying that wrong. Just bear with me. But that word is translated as choir master. And some scholars have suggested that it could also be translated. And I've said this. And furthermore, it could be translated at unto the end. It could be translated as perpetually. It could be also translated to the eternal one. I want you to file that in your heads. It, it could also be translated to the victor, to the conqueror. To the giver of victory. So I want you to consider this information. These inspired lyrics that were written by the sons of Korah. Were meant to be sung till the end. Were meant to be sung until the end. And most importantly. Addressed to the giver of victory. And yet again we find that this psalm. By a different author. Not David. But the sons of Korah. Begin, begin the same way. To the choir master. A mascal of the sons of Korah. I know you're asking. So what if. What is a mascal, Danny? Great question. Allow me to give you an answer. A mascal is an enlightened saying, a wise saying, a saying that imparts wisdom, a proverb, if you will, a song that is enforcing uh, some type of lesson, is enforcing or stressing wisdom, piety, righteousness. A mascal could also be a musical notation. If you're a musician and you get a song sheet, you, there's a little notation at the top, at the bottom, the tempo, the chord progression. It could also mean that. Also, the mascal could reflect the attitude that that song ought to be performed, if you will. Somber, reflective, meditative, a slower tempo, possibly even suggesting a minor chord progression to express the feeling of sorrow, distress, discouragement. So per this inspired notation, this is what we've covered so far, 11 minutes and 16 seconds into this sermon, that this song was written by the sons of Korah. That the, this song was addressed to the eternal one, to the giver of victory. And that this mascal, this song is a mascal which is a wise saying, a wise proverb. This is a song that is teaching us something about God and his character. Another question that might be asked, so who were the sons of Korah? And that is why we have number 16 on our outline. So if you would please open up your Bibles to number 16 or just follow along on your outline. 
And this morning I have a huge task of trying to cover 32 verses in about 30 minutes. I probably will fail miserably, but I trust that his grace is sufficient. Amen. So as, we, as you're turning your Bibles to number 16, I want you to consider that this is part of Israel's history. This is a history lesson. So everybody could breathe a sigh of relief. If you're familiar with the, the story of Korah and Korah's rebellion, you know it doesn't end well for Korah and his followers. It does not end well. I'm giving you the conclusion. So a sigh of relief. This, relief. this is not um, prescriptive. In other words, every time you rebel, every time you resist authority, every time you reject God, the earth will open up and swallow you up. Can everybody mention that truth? If that was the case, none of us would be gathering here this morning. But rather, this is descriptive, and I pray that we would be able to hear from God as we jump into the text. All right. So as you're there preparing your hearts to hear from this, allow me to suggest to you that the book of Numbers is a book of wanderings, a nation of Israel wandering in the wilderness for approximately 40 years because of the rebellion, the rejection in their hearts to God. And thus far in the book, rather in the book of Numbers, we find seven recorded insurrections, seven revolts that are recorded in the book of Numbers uh, by the people against Moses in Numbers 11. Four, the people rise up against Moses. In Numbers 12, verse 1, his family, Aaron and Miriam, are rising up against Moses. In Numbers 14, the community rises up against Moses. In Numbers 16, the text that we will be looking this morning, we find Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, which, by the way, were Moses' cousins. Now they are rising up against Moses. At the end of chapter 16 in Numbers, the nation rises up against Moses. In chapter 20, the people quarrel and rise up against Moses. And in Numbers 21, the people speak against God and Moses. So are you beginning to see the heart here? The nation constantly rebelled against Moses and against Aaron. So without further delay, let's read Numbers 16. Please follow along with your outline or on your outline. Starting in verse one. Now Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the son of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a hundred, uh, with a number of people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? As we read these verses, we have to ask ourselves, who's Korah, who's Dathan, who's Abiram, who is On? Well, give me, let me give you a summary. Korah was from the tribe of Levi. Dathan, Abiram, and On were from the tribe of Reuben. So we have Levites and Reubenites coming together, forming a mutiny against Moses. Now, what was the potential or the possible issue? What was going on in this scenario where they're coming together to resist Moses? And as I was explaining this to my daughters, this is a possible uh, scenario that was playing in their hearts. You see, the Reubenites, if you know anything about Israel's history, Reuben was uh, Jacob's first son. The leader, the leader of the family, if you will. But he was disqualified because of gross immorality. And then we find that 
um, Korah was a Levite. So we have two tribes that are, uh, one was set by God to be the one that did ministry inside the house. And the Reubenites uh, felt that they had that birthright to take succession of leadership. So now we have those that serve in the house and those that believe that they have some type of birthright uh, privilege assigned to them. They were rising against Moses. And as I was explaining this to my daughters, this is the best answer I could get. You see, the Bible teaches that all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. An example of something more tangible for you and I, the New Testament teaches that all elders are men. Can I hear an amen? But not all men are elders. You follow the logic? It's the same thing that was happening in the Old Testament. You see, Reuben was Jacob's firstborn, automatic patriarch, if you will, the leader, the representative of, of, the, uh, of the family. And it is possible that Dathan, who is a Reubenite, Abiram, who is a Reubenite, and On, who is a Reubenite, they have that false sense of entitlement. They desire that leadership position, the office. They wanted that recognition that was afforded to the, first, to the firstborn. They desire that pat on the back, if you will, because they felt that human tradition uh, gave that to them. Now, if you're still with me, point number one in your outline, as we look at this text, we must guard our hearts from jealousy and envy. You see, these men, these four influential men, garner the following of approximately 250 respectable men in the congregation. It's right there in the text. Men of renown, men of influence, men that were charismatic, men that were likable. And it is sad, saints, as we read this historical narrative, it is sad to see how quickly you and I are able to incite, incite others to join us in sin. And how quickly others will respond willingly to join us in sin. And why is that? Personally, I believe because inside of us, there is a little rebel that always wants to rebel against God's authority. I find that it's easy to get others to join us in sin, but very difficult to encourage others to pursue godliness. Amen. Pursue piety, obedience, submission, sacrifice, service to others. But I want you to look at verse three with me again. They assembled themselves together against who? It's right there in the text. You can say it out loud. Against, against who? Moses and against Aaron. And they said to them, you have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? Point number two, you're still with me. We must guard our hearts from character assassination, or another word would be slandering others. We must guard our hearts from character assassination. You see, the charge against Moses and Aaron was the following. You have gone too far. They were saying all are holy, which is true. The nation was set apart by God. Every one of them was set apart by God. And the Lord was among them. That is absolutely true. And they were saying to Moses and Aaron, why do you exalt? Exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord. Again, these were all true statements that the nation was a holy nation. The nation was set apart by God. But they were doing so with a heart of attempting to disqualify Moses and Aaron's leadership. Why is that? Well, if you know anything about Bible history and about these Bible characters, they all fell short. Can I hear an amen? They all fell short. You see, Moses was a murderer. He, had a, he saw injustice. He rose up. He ended up slaying an Egyptian. And in Exodus 2, verse 14, they were bringing that charge against Moses. It's right there in your outline. Who made you prince and judge over us? 
The charge against Moses was that you've raised yourself up above everyone else. You think you're better than everybody else. We're all equal. In a sense, yes, the nation was equal, but this was a sovereign choice of God to choose Moses to lead the nation out of slavery. But I want you to consider Moses' attitude when he was called to the task. He wasn't one that said, yes, I'm ready to go. I'll face Pharaoh. I'll tell him what it is. I'll be your representative. But rather, we find that Moses said in Exodus 3, verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? So Moses had a humble disposition about himself. The charge against Moses and Aaron was the whole nation is holy, which is true. And the understatement or the undertone was, you're not that special, Moses. You're just like us. And in Numbers 11, it's there in your outline. We find that Moses, uh, some were telling Moses, hey, there's people outside of the tent that are prophesying. There's people outside of the tent that are also communicating for God. And they wanted to go put those men, silence those men once and for all. And Moses responds and says, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets that the Lord would put his spirit on them. So what do you find in Moses? That he was a humble man. A man that did not elevate himself to a position, but rather was a man who he knew he was unfit to lead the nation of Israel. We see a man that wasn't pretending that he was the only one that had accomplished it all. But his desire was that everybody would prophesy, that everybody would speak on God's behalf. Now, let's look at Aaron's history, the high priest. He doesn't do any better. He does not do much better than Moses. You see, when Moses went to the mountain to communicate with God and he and he lingered a little too long, the nation started pressing and pressuring Aaron. What do we do? How do we worship? You're the high priest. We are left alone. Moses is no longer coming back. Give us what we want. Give us what we want, what we desire, what we know that works. Give us a system, a religion that is tangible to us, something that we could put our eyes to, to carry us in this time of need and want and desolation and lack of leadership. Staring your outline numbers, uh, rather, Exodus 32. And what does Aaron do, saints? He calls for all the nation to provide their gold, give it to him. And he fashions a golden calf for the nation. And when Moses realizes that great sin and he's confronting Aaron, the high priest, on his moral failure, his lack of leadership, giving the people what they wanted, which is the, the desires of their hearts, which are all vile and against God. This is Aaron, the high priest's response. And I'm going to read it out of the text because I don't want to misrepresent Aaron. And this is what he said. So I said to them, let anyone, this is in Exodus 32, it's on your outline, verse 24. Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Does that make sense? Aaron is saying, I threw the gold in the fire and out came a calf. It's not my fault. This is a high priest. So based on what we just read, it is quite possible that the leaders, Korah, Dathan, Abiram, saw their leaders and they knew they had fallen short. One of them was a murderer. Another was a pagan idol maker. But we need to consider that it was God who had appointed Moses and Aaron. Can I hear an amen? Not based on their performance. Can I hear an amen? Not based on their ability, not based on their wits, not based on their own strength. But they, God chose them according to his sovereign choice. You see, saints, what we find in scripture from the 
from Genesis to Revelation that God chooses the weak. He chooses the feeble. He chooses the frail. He chooses the insignificant, the one that is not much. God chooses not too many mighty, not too many wise, not too many of noble birth. Welcome to our gathering this morning. You feel encouraged? But he chooses the small, the insignificant to do great things for his glory and his glory alone. So if you're leading saints, or better yet, in every area that you're leading, we should make that known that we are not much. And then what we're trying to represent is Christ and Christ alone. Can I hear an amen to that truth? But I know this is what I, I find in my heart, sympathizing with Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. You see, many times when I've heard a sermon that called me to repentance, you know what my quick, my default response is? I'm going to poke holes on this guy's character. Who is this guy? Every time I hear a sermon that's calling me to faithfulness, I'm sitting there trying to disqualify that messenger. In pride, brewing in my heart, I'm looking for opportunities to tear that messenger down. And I trust that some of you might be struggling with that at this very moment. You see, when I'm caught up in my sin, but my sin pursuing it at all costs, and I hear a sermon to call me to repent, and rather than looking to opportunity to respond faithfully, I'm over there questioning that integrity, the messenger. He has not arrived. How dare he tell me to do this? Or I trust that in a group this size, you've probably dealt with this personally. When you come alongside a, a brother that you might find a transgression and you're pointing him to scripture and you're encouraging him with grace and repentance and the message of the gospel only to hear that person reject your advice or reject what you're telling them that's coming from the word or the word of God. So as I was studying Moses and Aaron's life and their history, saints, I have to say this. I was overjoyed because I saw God's grace in their life. Can I hear an amen? You know how I saw God's grace in their life? I'm not sure if you caught it with me, but I'm going to say it. I was so glad that God did not hold their past against them. Because that's how our Lord works. And I'm glad, and I know you're glad also, that you rejoice that God is able to transform vile, sinful, wretched, murdering, pagan, idol worshiper men and women. And transition these men and women from death to life, from enemies to friends, from child of darkness to children of light. And by his grace, he uses broken and weak and feeble men and women to accomplish great things. Look at verse four with me. When Moses heard it, he fell on his face and he said to Korah and all the company in the morning, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this. Take censors, Korah and all his company. Put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow and the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the holy one. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. Saints, you see Moses was being sinned against, but I rejoice to see how he responded. If you're still with me, point number three, we must guard our hearts from retaliation or revenge when we're being slandered, when we're being attacked. Look at his response. Look at Moses' response. What does it say in the text? When he heard this, when he heard this slander, when he heard these false allegations against him and his character and against the high priest, which was Aaron, Moses fell on his face. Moses fell on his face. You see, to fall on his face is a Jewish idiom 
that signifies to cry out to God. Moses cried out to God. He immediately went to pray and intercede. Immediately he humbled himself. Immediately he examined his heart to see if these charges had any merit. Please notice his response. His first response was not indignation, but prayer. His first response was not retaliation, but prayer. Rather than responding with a tit for tat, he prayed over the charges. And that is a humble heart. And I pray that that would be the heart of all of us this morning. Look at verse eight with me. And Moses said to Korah, hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you that God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? Verse 10, and that he has brought you near him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi with you. And would you see the priesthood also? Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? You're still with me. Point number four, we must guard our hearts from grumbling over God's assigned role. Grumbling over God's assigned roles. You see, Korah was a Levite. He was an apprentice to the priest, like I said earlier. He knew how to set up and tear down and move the tabernacle from one place to another. He would be equivalent to our set up and tear down crew. Can I hear an amen? That's who Korah was. Second Chronicle tells us, and the Levites and the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord and uh, the God of Israel with very loud voice. So Korah was part of the setup and teardown crew. Korah was also part of the ones that got all the elements of worship ready. So I'm not sure if you see it, that Korah had a significant, Korah and his sons had a significant ministry opportunity. Scripture tells us that he set up the lampstand, which would point to God's written word. They would set up the table of showbread, which highlighted God's fellowship and provision for the needy. They would also set up the altar of incense, which reflected or pointed to intercession and prayer. That was his function, but that was not enough. He wanted to be the high priest, but the high priest was selected by God and God alone. Numbers 3, verses 9 to 12, we read that God told Moses, And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him for among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. So I want you to consider the following. I want you to, I'm not sure if you're seeing Korah's heart this morning. He knew how to set up the tent. He knew how to work in the tabernacle, set up all the utensils. He knew how to do the high priestly functions. He was probably better than Aaron. Um, Yet he was not satisfied with what the Lord had assigned to him. He wanted more. He wanted a role that was not designated to him. Saints, we see this in our culture every day. Men abdicating their position as leaders in the home. Men not wanting to lead, but rather wanting to transition and become women. Women not wanting to willingly submit to their husbands, but they want that position of authority. Husbands not wanting to lead, not wanting to shepherd, not wanting to protect their families and provide for their families. At work, we see it ever so clearly, employer and employee conflict. Employer being overbearing, employees revolting and starting conflict. We see this in politics ever so clearly. 
elective service versus the citizenry. And sadly, we even see this in the church. Pastors and elders retaliating against the flock. And we also see the flock rising up and murmuring. But look at verse 13 with me. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you must make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into the land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? In other words, are you saying, are you, you think we're blind? We will not come up. If you're still following along, point number five, we must guard our hearts from denouncing God's provision. You see in these verses that we just read, Korah and his associates, they wanted land, they wanted possession, they wanted wealth. They rejected what God had faithfully provided for them in the wilderness. What God had given them was no longer enough. They wanted to return to slavery. They wanted to go back to Egypt. You see, in their wicked hearts, slavery and abuse and stringent physical labor was better than God's faithful provision for them. Now they were looking back at Egypt and saying, man, we had it good out there. Working 18-hour days. Notice how as we denounce and reject God's provision for us, we become insensitive and ungrateful in our response. And furthermore, we find that Moses called them so they would be able to speak and they told them, we're not coming up to you. So they were disobeying Moses. So please consider the following, that as they were refusing to obey Moses, they were defying, uh, by extension, they were also refusing and defying God. You see, Moses, God rather, had designated Moses to be the leader of the nation of Israel. By extension, he was faintly a very faint representation of God. And Aaron was a very faint representation of Christ, the role of the high priest. So as we read this, we might be tempted to think, okay, so they have a tragic ending. Why is this such a big deal? Why does God work in such a big deal? My, my kids were asking me this this week. But why would, would God just do this? If you know the ending, you know, the earth opens up and swallows them up. It seems a little drastic. It seems a little, a little overkill, no pun intended. Like, why would God do that? But saints, I need you to put your thinking caps on and think about what scripture has already communicated to this. This was far greater than Moses and Aaron. Can I hear an amen? You see, God had made a promise to Abraham. God had made a covenant with Abraham. And we know that Abraham was unable to keep his side of the covenant. But God made a faithful promise to him and to his descendants that he would give them, he would inherit them a land. And in that land, the Messiah would be born. We were just singing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. God made a promise to a specific man and his descendants that he was going to give them a land. And out of that land, would be, uh, a child would be born in a precise location. And all nations would be blessed by this man. A specific place, God made a promise that would come to pass. So I want you to consider that, saints. Follow me. This was a, an attack against God's word. This was an attack against the gospel. You see, that gospel that was first preached in the Garden of Eden by God being the first proclaimer of this gospel, the Proto-Evangelion, Genesis 3.15, in Eden, in the presence of Adam, Eve, and the serpent. You see, these men, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, they knew the gospel they knew it because Moses had already written the book of Genesis. And they were revolting against that gospel in pride. They were rejecting that gospel. 
And how does that apply to us? Oftentimes, we might respond just like Korah, thinking that we are the main players in God's story. We want all the attention. We want all the focus. We want all the recognition. And also, we see the same response from outsiders to the gospel, a complete rejection and mockery, disbelief and objection. But this passage in number 16 is there to teach us that the main character of all scripture is Christ and Christ alone. Can I hear an amen to that truth? Look at verse 15 with me. And Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them and I have not harmed one of them. And Moses said to Korah, be present, you and all your company before the Lord, you and they and Aaron tomorrow. And let every one of you take his censer and put incense on it. And every one of you bring before the Lord his censer, 250 censers, you also and Aaron each his censer. So every man took his censer and put fire in them and laid incense on them and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. Please use your imagination, saints. Not only did it start with Korah, Datham, Abiram, um, 250 of the elected leaders, men of influence, men of renown, but now what we just read, the whole nation had, were backing up this movement. Point number six, if you're still with, with me, we must guard our hearts from worshiping as we see fit. You see, I want you to notice before I jump into what I was about to say that Moses did not give him instructions, Korah and his group, how to light the fire because they knew it already. You see, they were the apprentice to the high priest. They were familiar with this process. But we see that now Korah wanted to approach God on his own terms. He was not assigned to light the, the incense or, or do any of that. But they started to worship as they saw fit. You see, this is the essence of pride. They wanted an office that was not delegated to them. They wanted a duty that went far beyond what God had designated for them. They wanted to worship God on their own terms. They wanted to do it for selfish gain. They wanted the recognition. They wanted to be seen by others. They wanted to build a name for themselves. Again, I'm not too sure if you're noticing that this is the same heart that was present in Cain and also in the inhabitants of the Tower of Babel. And this passage is also giving us another warning. If you're still with me, point number seven, we must guard our hearts from usurping authority. You see, these men were quick. They were ready to perform the functions of the high priest and complete defiance of God. See, Korah was ready and available, ready to lead in worship. I will call it false worship because of the worship contrary to God. You see, he performed it. He burned the fire which is, again, rep a representation of intercession and prayer. And again, this was a high priestly function and Korah had no problem doing it. He was rejecting what God had already instructed them to do. He was ready to step in in a role that was not delegated to him in complete pride. He was deceiving himself possibly because he was able to light the fire. He possibly because he had 250 men that were bolstering him. He had the backing. He had the movement. He had the affirmation. He had the voters. Uh, the votes, he had the support. He had the support of the nation. This is what they all wanted. I will rise. I will be known. Sadly, Korah was deceiving himself. Look at verse 20. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, separate yourself from among this congregation that I might consume them in a moment. 
And they fell on their faces and said, oh, God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and will be you be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, say to the congregation, get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan and Abiram. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, depart, please, from the tent of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. If you're still following along, point number eight, we must guard our hearts from becoming hard towards rebels. Why do I say that this morning? Please notice that as these men are uprising and leading a mutiny against Moses and the whole nation is back in their play, Moses hears from God and he's able to have a heart for them. They both fell on their faces. They started to intercede and beg for mercy for these men that were his enemies, if you will, because Moses had a heart for the people. And yes, he even had hearts toward those that were rebelling against him. You see, Moses and Aaron were looking for their greater good. How do you measure up to that, saints? Well, let me be honest. More often than not, when I'm aligned, when I'm misrepresented, when I'm slandered, I'm quick to pray. But I'm quick to pray the imprecatory songs. Consume them. Crush them. But we see that Moses and Aaron were faithful to communicate what God was telling them to communicate. Even though it might have been, it was probably not a popular message. Remember the setting. Korah, David, Abiram, 250 men, the entire nation. On the side of the insurrection, and Moses communicates faithfully. And they, though they were probably the, not the most popular at that very moment, they were faithful to do the task the Lord was calling them to do. I'm not sure if you're seeing it, but Moses and Aaron were fulfilling their godly duty when it was not popular. They were interceding for the people. They were standing in between God and the people pleading with them to repent and issuing a warning to separate from the lawlessness of these men. And that should encourage both you and I this morning. You see, oftentimes, if you're obedient to scripture, you have to stand in between sinners and God proclaiming a gospel that is not popular. A message that sounds like foolishness, a message that says that there's nothing you can do to save yourself, that you're spiritually bankrupt, that you desperately need God to intervene on your behalf, that you're a spiritual beggar, uh, that you're vile, sinful, rotten to the core, that you won't be able to accomplish on your own merits. Not a popular message. Oftentimes, I know that most of us have been falling on our faces, just like Moses and Aaron in full humility and dependence, praying and interceding for those that reject Christ and his gospel. So as you cry for unbelievers, saints, as you share the gospel with the lost, as you beg your family members during this holiday season, begging them to repent and put their hope in Christ and Christ alone, find your encouragement that you're doing it to be faithful to God. Amen. Look at verse 27. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works and that it has not been on my own accord. If these men die as all men die or if they, they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, they will go down alive into Sheol. Then shall know, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. Point number nine, if you're still with me, we must guard our hearts from choosing relationships over God. Choosing relationships over God. Why do I say this? You have to look at that passage very clearly. Notice that there are only three names given at verse 27. 
But at the beginning of number 16, they gave us four names. In addition, Numbers 26, 10 and 11, focusing on verse 11 says, but the sons of Korah did not die. So this is what I find encouragement that as Moses and Aaron are proclaiming for the nation to depart from the wicked tents, it's possible that the sons of Korah responded, rejecting their father's lead. Even if the message came from Moses, who was not a popular person, you see, by his grace, the sons of Korah were able to respond in a gracious manner, and they separated themselves from their father. Saints, I know it's difficult to respond in obedience at times, being uh, when, when there's opposition, and, or we have to stand in opposition with earthly families or friendships. It is difficult to stand uh, for what is true, to hold fast to Holy Scripture, going against culture, going against tradition, going against family practices, going against business partners. I know it's difficult, but this morning, I want to encourage you uh, to have a heart that's willing to respond positively to scripture, even above our culture, even above our, above our family, even above our friends or any relationship that, relationship that you value above Christ. That we would have an allegiance to Christ above any other relationship. Let's read verse 31. I'm running out of time. And as soon as he had finished speaking these words, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their household and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they all <clears throat> so they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. Last point, if you're still with me, we must guard our hearts from ignoring God's warnings. Ignoring God's warning. As we read this, an account. We find many similarities to the first insurrection that took place in heaven when the day star, son of the dawn, Satan, said the following, I will, I will ascend. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly. I will ascend above the heights. I will make my, myself like the most high. That's found in Isaiah 14. Sarah, your outline. But do you see that same hard attitude of pride, prestige, honor, attention-seeking? You see, Korah and his clan wanted to ascend, yet they were brought low. Scripture tells that the ground opened and they went to Sheol, the place of the dead, where no one could return. There was no bodies to mourn, no grave to mark their passing. What a tragic ending. And Jude tells us in Jude chapter 1, verse 11, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves to the sake of gain, <clears throat> to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. But I don't want to leave you here this morning with that as your final thought. The ground opened and swallowed them, and that was a tragic ending for them. But rather, I want to point your attention as this Psalm 42 begins to the choir master. I want to point your attention to the choir master, which is Christ, our great high priest. Can I hear an amen? Our only blessed hope, the one who intercedes for the Father, to the Father on our behalf, day in and day out, without fail. You see, Moses and Aaron fail constantly, yet Christ triumphed victoriously. Can I hear any amen to that truth? And you want to see his record is recorded for us under divine inspiration by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2. I want you to see this greater example. Philippians 2, I've said it often, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
God, he puts that aside. He becomes a human, but not just a human. He becomes a servant, not just a servant, uh, an obedient servant. And then he goes to death, but not just any death, the death of a cross. You see how he's condescending and making himself low and low and low. And verse nine says the following. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, speaking of Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Amen to that truth. You see, with all this information in mind, you and I should respond positively to scripture. We should guard our hearts and learn from Israel's past. That we should be tender to those rebels proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would find satisfaction in the roles that God has assigned for us. No wonder why the sons of Korah wrote in Psalm 84.10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in tents of wickedness. You see it? They had learned to be content being the doorkeepers. Let me translate it. Being the security guard. The one that stands guard at the door. Now remember that their fathers were inside. They weren't doing all this ministry inside the tabernacle. Korah and the sons of Korah were content just being outside because they had experienced God's mercy, God's compassion, God's faithfulness to deliver them and spare them from wrath. Saints, and the same is for you and I. It is far better for you and I to be satisfied where God has placed us than to push our way only to be dwelling in defiance towards God. And I'm going to return to Psalm 42, which says to the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. Please pray with me. Father, as we saw this history, Israel's history, I pray that our hearts would be encouraged, that we would guard our hearts, that we would seek to respond positively to your word, that we would learn to be content, that we will be satisfied where you have placed us. That we will not be jealous or envious, that we will not slander others, that we will not retaliate or seek revenge, that we will not grumble over God's assigned roles, that we will not denounce your faithful provision, that we will worship, that we would not worship as we see fit, that we would not uprise it as, uh, against established authority, that we would not become hardened towards sinners, that we would not choose relationships above you, that we would not ignore your faithful warnings to us. This we pray in your son's name. Amen.